First Kings 22, verses 1 to 38. It's going to be a long one. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor, at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenaanah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favourable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them, and speak favourably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, 
The Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenaana, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the thirty-two captains of his chariots, Fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, you're warmly welcome as a preacher at a church. Am I on now? Awesome. When you uh, set a ridiculously long reading from an obscure part of church history, Christian, uh, you know, biblical history, and someone reads the whole thing. So thank you very much. I appreciate that very much. Uh, my wife sends her apologies. She uh, would love to be here with you this morning, uh, but my children didn't want to be here with you. Not you personally. Uh, but my children are 10, uh, 6 and 4. And they're all going through this phase of um, loving being at our local church, which is great, and we want to make the most of that. So when they say they want to go, we let them, we take them. So Cheryl's doing that this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray again, if that's cool, and then ask you to do something that might be a bit weird, I don't know. Uh, Heavenly Father, please uh, uh, help us as we think about this part of the Bible. Uh, please open the eyes of our hearts to see 
the power of truth in all the Bible. Help us to see the Bible more as it really is, your word. And we pray that this will help us for the rest of our lives to have your word penetrating more deeply into our thoughts and attitudes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I, I'm hoping I can get away with this if it is weird because I'm a visitor and you've been so friendly so far. Um, what I want you to do is turn to the person next to you and just discuss a couple of questions. It's just a discussion. There's no right or wrong answers. Do you do this kind of thing here? Not really. Well, thank you for being so nice to me. So the two questions are, how is truth powerful and how is truth not powerful? Okay, just in general, just what thoughts do you have? There's no right or wrong answers. Just take a minute with the person next to you. How is truth powerful? How is truth not powerful? Go. Excellent. Thank you so much for doing that. Hopefully they'll just get you primed to hear what God's going to say to us. Well, uh, Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So how much is that your experience of the word of God? We're going to look this morning at the story of Ahab. And Micaiah brings him a, a direct new message from God, uh, which is really piercing. But that's not our experience most of the time. So the book of Hebrews starts, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So in the past, like Ahab's time, God spoke through the prophets different ways, different times. But in these last days, things have reached the finale, the climax. God has spoken Jesus. And so now we have that in the Bible. And so we don't look for other you know, messages from heaven, though obviously, however God wants to speak, he can do whatever he likes. He's the boss. So when the author says the word of God is living and active, he's saying the Bible is God's living, active word. It's still living and active, even though it's kind of written down and set now. And so when it says it penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, I mean, he's not saying the Bible can give you a really bad paper cut. He's saying it gets into you. It evaluates our thoughts and feelings and what's going on inside us. And that's how God guides us and grows us. So I wonder how much is that your experience of the Word of God? Well, uh, I, I often get frustrated that the Bible divides people from each other. What it's supposed to do is divide us. Uh, and we're supposed to do that together, not be divided from each other. So we're going to work through this story in, in 1 Kings 22. We're not going to do it verse by verse. You'll be relieved to know. But this, this kind of story of the fall of King Ahab, how he died, um, can warn us of three lies about God's word. Three lies that we see here God's people struggling with and that we can struggle with. 
So it starts out by contrasting Ahab and Jehoshaphat to kind of introduce what's going on. Then it shows Ahab struggling with these three lies. Uh, and in the middle of the third struggle, God speaks his word through the prophet. And then it finishes with the results of God's word and Ahab's struggle and vindicating the word of God and showing that Ahab shouldn't have believed the lies. So firstly, the contrast between Ahab and Jehoshaphat introduces the topic of half-truths. Look at the first four verses. So if you've got your little uh, service outline thing in the middle, uh, we've got the, the Bible reading, and I'll read you the first four verses again. Listen how this raises the issue of half-truths. For th three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Uh, well, uh, this Bible reading that we're reading today, it's set in the period uh, of the history of the Bible, where the Jewish nation has split into two nations. The majority are part of the northern kingdom of Israel. The minority formed the southern kingdom of Judah, ruled from the traditional capital in Jerusalem. And so this story we're reading this morning is, uh, well, it has the potential for them to develop better relationships with each other, which as God's chosen people, they were supposed to have. And Ramoth Gilead was part of the land God had promised to the Jews through their ancestor Abraham. Uh, God had commanded his people, after waiting till the, the right and fair time, to go and take the land by force. Uh, the people of the land had the choice to convert to worshipping the true God, or run away, or be killed. Uh, and God had been faithful in giving his people success, but his people had been consistently unfaithful in trusting God. So this is an opportunity for them to do as God has commanded and trust God to give them success. What Ahab, the king of Israel, says here is good. It matches up with the truth of God's word. But look at what Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, says in verse 5. Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. So Jehoshaphat basically says, you're right, what you're saying is true, but we should check if there's any more word of God, any more truth that we also need to take into account. Ahab hasn't said anything wrong, but Jehoshaphat says, well, let's, let's just check if there's anything else. And so that's the sort of the struggle of the whole chapter. The lies that Ahab struggles with are all half-truths. I mean, half-truths are the worst, aren't they? Because the half that's true is what makes them so deceptive and tempting. Let me show you what I mean. The first lie about the Word of God is spirituality should be only positive. Look at verse 8. What does the King of Israel think God's Word should be like? And the King of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, 
for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Right, the king of Israel, Ahab thinks, God's word should be positive. And Jehoshaphat says, don't say that. The problem is not that Ahab has been misunderstanding God's word. He's understood it, he just hasn't liked it. And uh, Jehoshaphat says, it is unwise to dismiss bad news just because you don't like it. And Ahab, Ahab has experienced this for himself. Right? In just the previous chapter of Kings, you get the story of Ahab becoming a murderer for the sake of acquiring a conveniently located garden. I mean, he's really got his priorities wrong. And in that case, God sent the prophet Elijah to confront Ahab with how terrible he was being. And Ahab didn't like it, but he listened and he humbled himself. And God was incredibly merciful. Right? It was a negative message, but something Ahab really needed to hear. And to the extent that he responded rightly to the message, it ended up doing him good. Imagine, uh, well, this isn't going to be hard for some of you to imagine. Imagine a father is diagnosed with cancer. It's an aggressive cancer at an advanced stage. There's nothing the doctors can do. It's going to kill him. The doctor wonders, should I tell him? I mean, it's only bad news. There's nothing he can do. Of course you tell him. So he knows he's got to make the most of the time he's got left with his family. Right? Spirituality is not supposed to be only positive. The message of Jesus is is the most wonderful message in the world. But spirituality is not supposed to be only positive. Then we'd never deal with problems. God's word is not just positive. God's word is true. God's word tells us that God loves us and accepts us unconditionally. But we need to know the whole truth. We all reject God and try to run life our own way without him. And this rebellion runs so deep into our minds and hearts that we deceive ourselves by it. And so if we go on that way, we will eventually end up separated from God and his love and each other and all his blessings forever. Why does the Bible tell us that bad news? Because God has done something about it. Jesus has come to die, to take the consequences of our rebellion, to soak up the consequences and defeat them so we can have a new relationship with God, trusting Jesus. Spirituality is not supposed to be only positive. Then we'd never deal with the problems. God is, God's word is not just positive. It's the whole truth. The second lie is spirituality should only be unifying. There's this glorious unity pictured in the gathering that Micaiah is being brought to. Look at verses 10 to 12. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. 
and all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Janana, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. So Micaiah is walking into this impressive royal court with King Ahab plus a visiting king in their royal robes, plus 400 prophets, and all the prophets are speaking in the name of the Lord God, the God of the world who has chosen the Jews to be his people and through whom he'll restore blessing to the world. And all the prophets are saying, do as God has promised, attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But this creates a struggle. King Ahab sent a messenger to the prophet Micaiah, and look what the messenger says in verse 13. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favourable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them, and speak favourably. The assumption here is God's word should be unifying. If everyone can agree, well, that's a good thing, right? If everyone can be included and participate together, that's how things are supposed to be. This has the potential to unite Israel and Judah the way God intends. Don't mess it up by being stubborn, Micaiah. We all like to be liked. We all like to get along with other people. And God's word is supposed to be unifying. God's plan is to bring all people back to himself through Abraham's offspring. God's plan is for the Jews to be a nation of priests to connect the rest of the nations to God. God's word is supposed to unify people. That's true. But if we only ever speak about things that unify us, then we will never constructively deal with a disagreement. And to have real unity, that needs doing too. I mean, there's no question that the 400 prophets are unified. But are they unified by God? Or by the likely fact that they're all on the king's payroll? They're talking about whether to go and attack a city full of Aramean people. Given that it's God's plan to unify the people of the world, it's not obvious if this is the right action at the right time. God cares about the people of Ramoth Gilead. He has expressed his justice in the world at times by giving Israel military victory over the surrounding nations. But sometimes the Jews have been wrong and so God has given them into the hands of their enemies. God's not prejudiced. God doesn't play favourites. He has revealed right and wrong in the consciences of all. And he has revealed his anger at the wrongdoing of all. And he offers forgiveness to all so that all can be reconciled to him and unified together. That's how it works.
So who does King Ahab want to unify? What kind of unity is he wanting? Is this the most constructive way to deal with the disagreement with the people of Ramoth-Gilead? Spirituality is not supposed to be only unifying. Then we'd never deal constructively with, constructively with disagreements. God's word is not just unifying. God's word is universal. Well, the third struggle is described in a way that may be foreign to some of us. Uh, let's pick up the story about the messenger. Uh, sorry, let's pick up the story after the messenger has advised Micaiah to go along with the crowd in telling the king what he wants to hear. So let's look at uh, verses 14 to 18. Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered them, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, this is Micaiah again, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Now, just as Jehoshaphat had been suspicious about relying on the 400 prophets, prophets Ahab gathered, Ahab knew from experience that Micaiah was not telling him the truth. So there's this irony. Micaiah tells the king what he wants to hear, what the messenger told him to say, and Ahab is annoyed because he knows Micaiah is not being sincere. In fact, this has happened repeatedly because in verse 16, Ahab says, how many times must I you know, make you swear to tell me only the truth? Uh, it, seems, it seems like Micaiah uses this as a way to try and get Ahab to listen. Uh, you know, we're not sure, like, maybe it's his tone of voice, maybe it's the way he winks at the other, who knows, right? But it's provoking Ahab to listen. But what is King Ahab doing? Like, why does Ahab, if he actually wants all these yes men, why doesn't he want Micaiah just to be another yes man? Ahab wants all the facts so that he can make a decision. Right? He wants to be empowered to take responsibility. He's the king, and although he consults with others, he needs to take responsibility for the decision to go to war. That's all good stuff. Ahab thinks spirituality should be empowering. That's a good thing. Half the truth. But he's missing the other half. Look at how Micaiah continues in verse 19. Micaiah said... Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. 
Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. The common idea of the surrounding nations at the time, which had influenced Ahab, was that there was a range of gods who were more or less present in different locations and more or less in control of different aspects of the world. And those gods had different agendas because ultimately they were selfish and competing to run the world. So if you thought that was reality, prophecy was a complicated business. Because even if you got a message from one of the gods, another god might give you a different message. And even if all the gods you heard from agreed, some other god might show up and mess up their plans. But Micaiah says, reality is nothing like that. There is one God. Everything is under his control. Everywhere is under his control. Everyone is under his control. Even wrong messages from false prophets are ultimately under his control. Uh, some people, I think understandably, find it offensive that God sends a message to deceive Ahab. But do you notice, he also sends the true message. He doesn't leave Ahab in the dark. He says, I've sent this guy to trick you, now I'm sending this guy to show you. So that Ahab can learn what God is really like. That there is just one God. That he doesn't need to do spiritual politics to try and get what he wants. God has previously spectacularly taught Ahab this. You might know it's quite a famous story uh, back on Mount Carmel where Elijah called down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice to show that uh, Yahweh, the God of all the world, the God of the Jews, is the one true God. God's been showing this to Ahab and Ahab's still not listening and God is still graciously showing Ahab who he really is, how things really work. Ahab can even tell that Micaiah is not initially giving him the genuine word of God. Why can't he tell that? 
with the 400 prophets who are just telling him what he wants to hear. It's a bit like a magician who tells you how the trick is done. There's all those reality shows on TV now. There's the, have you seen the, the magic reality shows where they, they show you the trick and you're only impressed and they show you how it's done? I mean, you may not be able to actually see them pull the card out of their sleeve, but once they've shown you how the trick is done, it's not deceit anymore. And, and God has told Ahab he's enticing him, right? So it's not deceit. Uh, God's not deceiving Ahab. He is incredibly patiently, incredibly kindly disciplining him like a misbehaving son. And Ahab has misbehaved terribly and has been getting God's warnings and help for a long time. God is in control, so God's word is trustworthy. The question is, how will Ahab respond? I mean, does Ahab really want to be empowered? Does Ahab really want to take responsibility? Well, the way to do that is to trust God's word. Look at down at verses 24 to 28. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Amon the governor of the city and to Joash the king's son. And say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meagre rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace... The Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. Man, that's gutsy. Uh, things escalate quickly from disagreement to physical force. Another prophet slaps Micaiah, mocks his claim. Ahab has Micaiah imprisoned on meager rations to try and take control of the situation. I'm the king, I should be in control. as if he can take control of the situation back from God by kind of taking his prophet hostage. Like, I mean, that's a bad plan. Ahab is not looking to God's word to reveal how God is in control so that Ahab can be empowered by trusting God. Like the surrounding nations with their many gods, Ahab's just trying to get inside information on the political situation in heaven so Ahab can try and manipulate the situation for himself. Ahab does not want spirituality to help him take responsibility because he rejects God's being God. Spirituality is not supposed to be only empowering. If we're not willing to depend on anyone else, then we can never experience true partnership with anyone else. You sometimes see that in a marriage where one partner becomes worried about whether the other is being faithful to them. If they suspect their partner is having an affair, they may try to take control of the situation. Their partner may cooperate and empower them to keep tabs on them or hire a private detective or whatever. 
But ultimately, marriage is built on trusting each other. You can't make a marriage work by controlling each other. I'm not saying those things are necessarily wrong for a season. But marriage ultimately is not about controlling each other. It's about trusting each other. And that trust is the foundation for the intimacy and and joy of marriage. The reality is all of us are completely dependent on God because he made us, he runs the world, uh, we're dependent on him for every breath. But your personal relationship with God cannot be deeper than your willingness to trust him. We've seen three lies about God's word. Micaiah does a great job of warning Ahab, but in the end, Ahab believes the lies, which is a disaster for him. Ahab stays positive, but rejects the truth. Ahab stays unified with his yes-men, but doesn't deal constructively with the situation. Ahab seeks to take control of the situation himself instead of trusting God. I mean, it's a disaster. So Ahab tries to prevent God from fulfilling his word by disguising himself. It would be hilarious if it wasn't so tragic. I mean, it it prevents the Arameans from knowing who he is. Um, Jehoshaphat's even gullible enough to be the decoy. But God knows who Ahab is. And so he makes sure that one of the archer's arrows just happens to make its way to Ahab and pierce between his armour and cause his death. At the end, the dogs lick up his blood a disgraceful death that God had already predicted through the prophet Elijah. So this is a really strong warning. Don't believe these lies, these half-truths about the word of God. Spirituality is not only positive, it's true. Spirituality is not only unifying, it's universal. Spirituality is not only empowering, It brings us into true, wonderful dependence on God. Um, If you haven't seen the movie The Stepford Wives, I'm about to spoil it for you. But given how old it is, I don't feel any guilt. Uh, In in the movie, uh, a couple moves to a village to have a, a fresh start on a simpler, more enjoyable life together as a couple. And all the other couples in the village seem to be living the American dream. But as the story progresses, it, it becomes more and more shocking how much the wives in the village are our worst stereotype of servile, subservient shells of women who, who kind of live to do the bidding of their husbands. And yet, they're all very happy. It's just weird. So then it turns out that the women are not their real natural selves. They're part of this weird science fiction experiment to control them to make them the wives their husbands want. And so the climax of the story 
is when the man who's the centre of the story, the new couple that have moved, the man decides he doesn't want that. He doesn't want a Stepford wife. He wants his real wife. Do you want a Stepford God? Or do you want God for real?